it enables me to do all of those things. Whereas if I was YOLOing in the traditional sense and spending all of my money, I would be stuck in jobs that I didn't like for a lot longer periods of time. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode on The Fi Show. Today, we have Jessica from The Fioneers, who talks about slow fi. She talks about lifestyle design and a whole bunch of other things. But before we get into that, let me check in with Justin. What is going on, man? Well, you know me, on the move as usual, roaming around Utah and Montana, checking out the Grand Tetons as well as Yellowstone. Been very pumped about this trip for a while, and we're going to be on this trip for a little bit. We're going to be through the end of the week, and we're going to be going over to a country music festival down in Idaho. You'll actually love how I'm saving some money on this trip, Cody. My rental car and my hotel are the same thing. (laughs) What kind of car did you get? So the cheapest rental car, thankfully, was a cargo van a two-seater cargo van so the whole back end's wide open and uh to just throw the sleeping bags and stuff in there and car camp (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) i've slept in a rav4 before and it was not as luxurious oh yeah we should have plenty of room plenty of room we'll bring our we'll bring our mattress pads and everything we'll be good what were you up to this past weekend cody well, I'm not doing as much traveling, but I'm definitely having some fun. We are officially moved into the lake house for the summer, so can wake up, go on a kayak, can go on a kayak at 10 in the morning, can go on a kayak at 2 p.m., whenever. It's awesome. I know you're right on the river as well, Justin, and it, being on the water just, I don't know, it's a whole different vibe. You just wake up with a smile on your face, you know, seeing the water glistening, feeling the wind. And then we had a little cookout at Lauren's mom's house on Saturday, ended up going out toward my college town of Amherst on Sunday, doing a bike ride, hanging out with her dad. And yeah, just a lot of fun family time, hung out with friends as well, went to a couple bars. It was a pretty eventful weekend. But I think that's enough about us, Justin. Let's take a quick moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called personal capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards, They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you wanna use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. Well, Cody had another great episode today with Jessica. I knew Jessica from my time in Boston. We used to do some Choose FI meetups together and actually got to see her give one of these presentations that went over a lot of things she talked about today, the the slow fi concepts, designing your life. And it really challenges you to step back and say, like, am I going too fast at this? Am I limiting myself on how I can design my life based on these assumptions that 
I have to work up until I hit the goal and then stop. Like there's not a way to gradually ease into it. So that's probably the biggest thing that I love about Jessica's mentality and what she's really out there trying to show people is that there's different stages you step across and each stage gives you a little more freedom and a little more freedom. And it doesn't have to be, you're just tied down until you're not. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Justin. I mean, she really challenged me and I think she might challenge a lot of the listeners. But what I really liked is that Jessica actually lives this stuff. You know, so many people are out there preaching this, preaching that, you know, use the money that you already have to build that lifestyle. And but Jessica is someone who is actually going out there and doing it. She's actually implementing these changes, using her money as a tool to build that life that she wants to build that 10 out of 10 life. You'll hear her talk about the sliding scale of kind of happiness, where you are with your work-life balance. And I just think that stuff is so important. And if you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, and you want to connect with Jessica, you want to read some of her amazing content, you can do all that at our show notes at thefiveshow.com slash Jessica. That's thefiveshow.com slash Jessica. It probably wasn't actually until I reached like the age of 30. I think a big part of it was that I just didn't want to have anything to do with money. So I definitely had a scarcity mindset. I grew up in a middle-class family in Michigan, and I volunteered a lot as a kid. I traveled and did volunteer work. I spent most of my college summers like doing volunteer work in Latin America and studying in places. And so I felt really guilty about the money that I did have because it was so much more than, you know, the family that I had lived with in the mountainside of Nicaragua. And I really had a hard time managing that and figuring out what to do with it. And so besides knowing that I had enough to like cover my expenses, I didn't really pay attention to money at all until I was about 31. And I'm really lucky to have a spouse who did. <laughs> Well, I was going to ask, you know, a lot of, I mean, sometimes we hear people who they weren't really into personal finance, but when they discovered it, they're like, oh, well, I've already been doing pretty well and I'm actually much closer to retirement than I even knew that I was. So I guess what did things look like, even if you weren't focusing on finance? So I definitely had some good financial habits instilled in me. So when I went to college, I remember my dad sat me down and he was like, so you can go to this college that is giving you a full ride, or you can go to this college and then you have to work every summer and make like X amount of money. And like taking out student loans, like wasn't even an option that he like put in front of me, right? He was like, loans is not a thing you're going to do. You're not going to take out any debt. And so I ended up going to the college that did, you know, give me a full ride and actually like paid me to go to school for the first couple of years. They actually paid out the money that did not go to the expenses for school, which was really interesting. Right. And I had also been instilled with this mindset of like, you don't live above your means no matter what. And so even, right, I graduated in 2009 into the recession. One of my first jobs, I did AmeriCorps and I made $11,000 a year in northern New Jersey, right outside New York City. And we didn't eat out for an entire year. We were extremely frugal just to stay in the black, right? And so I think that a lot of times you hear people telling stories of like they learned about personal finance through like their debt freedom journey. I feel like for us, it was like 
getting good with finances because we absolutely needed to because we made such low incomes first coming out. But as we continued to grow our careers, then my husband, who was in charge of our finances at the time, which is sad for me to say now as a feminist, had been sort of continually increasing our savings rate and continually increasing like what we were putting away. My introduction to Phi was every year we'd sit down and do a like a financial planning meeting and he'd be like, let's just say 5% more this year. Like, how about 5% more? And I would be like, okay, fine. Like, <laughs> as long as we can do all of the other things that I want to do, like, that's fine. And so it wasn't until, okay, so, so at the age of 31, my husband gives me your money or your life. And he's like, I just want you to understand my perspective and like where I'm coming from. And it was really good timing because I was like in a pretty toxic job. I was like at a point where I was like working 50 hours a week. I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. And so this was like the prime moment, I think, for me to learn about financial independence. And so I'm reading the book and at first I'm like, oh, whatever, this isn't real. And then I understand I'm like, okay, there's like actual math behind retirement. Like that's a thing. And then it gets to the question where it asks, like, what would you do if you didn't need to work for income? And I could not figure out an answer to that. Hmm. And so that sort of started me on this journey and got me really excited about, like, figuring out what I wanted to do. So then I'm reading this book and I turn to my husband and I say, is this real? Like, can we do this? And he's like, oh, yeah, we have a 12-year timeline. That must have been pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. And but also at the same time, I was so miserable already in my current like situation that I was like, oh, that's awesome. And I'm I can't do this. I can't do what I'm doing for another 12 years. Right. And so we knew there was gonna have to be some sort of like middle ground because I think at that, that point it was still. Phi was about retiring super early and living really frugally and depriving yourself, which I know it's not, but at that point in time, that's what it still felt like to me. So I wasn't quite ready to, to like fully be like, I'm doing this thing. I was like, I get it now and I want to figure out how to live a good life now. I want to rewind quickly to your 20s and definitely want to give a shout out to Corey because it sounds like he kind of had it all together and... Just for some background for people who don't know, me and Jessica and Corey have gotten dinner together. We've hung out at the airport together. They're an awesome couple. And so correct me if I'm wrong. You were making 10 bucks an hour out of college. Who's making 12 bucks an hour out of college? I have this written down from, I don't remember which article it was exactly. But, you know, through those 20s, you said when you're 31 years old, Corey's like, hey, we're 12 years away from our goal. So I'm guessing there must have been some income jumps. I can't imagine that you're going to be racing down the path to five, making 10 and $20 an hour. You know, what were some of those steps and some of those things that happened in between those years? Yeah, for sure. So for, for me, my income, right? So I started out, right, doing the AmeriCorps, making the $11,000 a year, which I don't even think is $10 an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's less than that. They want you to make like 105% of the poverty rate for your county. So that's all you get. So from there, so I only did that for a year. And then I was hired on in the organization that I did the the AmeriCorps 
fellowship for in a full-time role. So at like a market rate salary. And I actually remember thinking back, like asking for an amount that I thought was like outrageous. And my boss was like, yeah, that's not enough. I'm giving you $5,000 more than what you asked for. (laughs) And then from there, ended up continuing to grow my career, went to graduate school, got a master's in public administration, transitioned from doing like fundraising and partnership development into human resources, which is in some respects, like a more lucrative field. And so then found a new job with an organization and then sort of worked my way up there as well. And then my husband at the same time, so he started out at working at a university and then transitioned to working in a nonprofit. Again, at a sort of fairly entry-level operations manager kind of salary. He's been with that organization now for eight and a half years and has like worked his way up to be like the chief of staff and like the senior vice president of operations and finance. And so we've definitely seen quite a bit of career growth over the last like 10 to 12 years. Well, I'm sure we'll get to this, but sort of my choice to also from from that decision scale back as well because we we had increased our income to the point where we were sort of comfortably saving about 50% of our income and still getting to like eat out every once in a while and like take a trip if we wanted to right and do the things that I I was like I won't live this life where I don't get to do these things And so that was the point where we were at, at the age of 31. So I'm guessing that another thing that maybe led to the scaling back, besides just being in a place financially where you could, was some of the stress that was going on. Because I know I've read that in 2018, you you got really burnt out with your job, even to the point of having like a panic attack. Can you just talk through what that was like mentally and like kind of the decision process you went through when you're like, hey, this is too much and I've got to stop? So part of it was, I think, like, my job had been really, really bad and very stressful for a long time. But then I was starting to see that there was something different. And so it it started to, like, not feel worth it anymore. Or there was now a gap between the life that I currently had and the one that I, like, felt like I could eventually have. Whereas I think before I learned about Phi, I was like, oh, People just work forever, right? And so when I started to feel that gap, then I think it's like that exacerbated the negative feelings, which in some ways is a good thing. Also, I feel like it would have been nice if I had actually made a decision at that point to be like, yeah, you can quit, right? But at that point, I wasn't ready to do that and wasn't wasn't at a place where I was able to like make that decision to leave. I was still in a place where I was like, I need to climb the corporate ladder and I need to, like I was in the process of like getting the promotion that I'd been going after. And I actually got that promotion like a week before my mental breakdown, right? And so I was going after that and it was extreme. Yeah, the job got extremely stressful There were points in time where I definitely felt like my boss was asking me to do things that were like sort of against my like moral compass, right? I think sometimes when you work in HR, you're like, I actually think like this is the thing that's right 
but the CEO is telling me I can't do that and I have to do this other thing. And so there was a, yeah, it got to a point where just there was one night, right, in in July where I woke up and I had this like three-hour panic attack and I just knew I like couldn't go back. And at first I was like, okay, I can't go back today. And then I was like, I can't go back for a couple of weeks. And then finally made a decision that like, no, I'm not, like I'm going to take a leave of absence and like get the disability insurance that was offered. And then ultimately after taking about six months off, I decided to quit. And so I decided that I wasn't going to go back to work after that. And so part of the thought process at first, and this was actually the first time I had to actually dig into money myself, right? Like prior to this, I think it all just sort of felt like theoretical. Like we had this monopoly money that was in the bank, like, but we can't use it. It's for some future day, right? And so pretty quickly when I... At first, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't just like not go back. I have to do this. And then I started to think about it. And it was like, wait a second. We have an emergency fund. This is what emergency funds are for. How much money do we have in our emergency fund? About nine months of expenses. So then I was like, "Okay, great. Nine months. We can go nine months. Right. And then I was like, wait, that's if we both lost our jobs and we save about 50% of our income. At the time, we, we were both making about the same as much money. So we were basically living off one person's income and saving the other person's. And so then I realized like, oh, I can take off as much time as I need and we won't even be dipping into our emergency savings. And so for me, that was a really powerful moment to learn that like money is something that can be used right now to improve your situation, right? That it's like, yes, we have these long-term goals too, but that we're building financial freedom so that we can design and like change our situation if we need to, to make our lives better all along all along the journey. Perfect transition into what you call slow fi. And you guys are the pioneers of this term. And you want to just explain it for everyone and then kind of what it means to you? I know you just mentioned a lot of the tenets of it, but I think it'd be just interesting to hear from your perspective. Sure. So the idea behind SloFi, um, and actually was born because I was thinking like, I want to hear stories about people who are using their financial freedom along the way to financial independence and not just depriving themselves and reaching five. You know, like there was definitely a few people early in my journey who like are sort of early financial independence content creators. So like Mad Fientist, JD Roth, Mr. 1500, who all were like coming out with content that were like, we did it this way. We took the super fast approach and we're telling people to slow down, right? And then Christy, too, from Millennial Revolution, too, is now like communicating that type approach as well. But it's like, but what does that look like? Like all of these early FI pioneers, right, are telling us to slow down, but who's doing it and what does that look like? And so I put out a call for stories to hear about people who were taking sabbaticals or people who were reducing their hours at work or taking a semi-retired approach or 
even like finding a better job that they enjoyed more, even if it paid less, right? And so people who were just doing those things. And so then the interview series started before I actually was like slow fi and like connecting it to like the slow living and the slow food kind of movements around intentionality, right? And so the, but the whole idea then around slow fi developed that it's like an umbrella, right? Of like any decision that someone is making using their financial freedom to improve their life along the way to financial independence. So yes, we have the ultimate goal of reaching FI, but we're using our financial freedom all along the way as well. So that like for me, my goal is that when I hit my FI number, nothing in my life will need to change because I've already made so many small decisions and shifts all along the way that I'll already be living that ideal FI lifestyle when I hit that number. And when people are going down this journey and, and trying to think through this slow FI mindset, are there kind of milestones and things that you talk about that helps people visualize like, okay, you know, you can start working halftime because you've reached this point or whatever it might be, just letting people kind of get creative and think about the options that it opens up based on where they are. Yeah, there's a few. So so I actually have this like stages of financial freedom that sort of starts with debt freedom, goes to having FU money, coast fi and semi-retirement. Um, and all of those stages will unlock new lifestyle designs. Okay, so for, for debt freedom, I would define that as high interest debt, right? So probably not including the mortgage, but honestly, you can define debt freedom however you want to. But the idea behind this stage is that if you've paid off that debt, then your expenses are lower. And if your expenses are lower, then that will allow you to do something like find a job that you enjoy more, even if it pays less, or quit a time-consuming side hustle that you're not enjoying, right? Or, you know, and then the next stage, if once you reach FU money, right, which is, I would say it's like your emergency fund, but it's also what you need to feel, like how much you need to feel like you can use that financial freedom. So some people think that's six months of expenses. Some people think that's a year, two years, right? It just depends on your comfort level and what it is that you want to do, right? And so this having FU money can allow people to do things like start their own business, right? And self-fund it. So they don't need to take out debt or find investors. Or they could take a mini retirement or some other type of career break for a period of time, right? And then from there, you have Coast Fi. So that's when you no longer need to actually invest for your traditional retirement. So depending on your age, right, you have a certain amount of money in your investments and it will grow to be what you need at the age of 60 or 65, whatever age you want to traditionally retire. So at that point, technically, you could completely scale back and only cover your actual costs of living, right? Because you don't need to add any more to the investment accounts. Most people who reach Coast Fi don't do that, but they use it. And that's what we're doing too. It's you use it as a feeling of freedom to say, I can scale, I get to scale back now 
And then people do things like reduce their hours at work. So they might work part-time similar to what I did for a couple of years, or they might start their own business, right? Or they might work seasonally, right? So there's people who, you know, do a number of of those different options as well. And then semi-retirement, or I think some people call this barista fire, where you still need to, you're able to pull some from your portfolio, but you still need to cover some of your costs with active income. You don't necessarily have to be a barista to do that, (laughs) right? Like you could do consulting or contracting work in your field, find something that's like very part-time or have your own business doing, you know, generating some income to cover the gap. So for example, actually I have a friend who Justin, you know, from the Choose FI group, Rebecca, who actually ended up leaving her career and quote unquote retiring early in 2020, knowing that she could semi-retire and only need to generate 10K a year of active income. And she could do that by like opening up credit cards for the bonuses and walking dogs and, you know, doing like a little bit of part-time work. And so, right, there's a way to to scale back and just be like, okay, I'm going to, you know, I can pull money from my portfolio at like 3% and I need to cover X amount. So I do want to lean on your HR and talent acquisition expertise for a second, because, you know, a lot of these conversations probably sound awesome to people listening, but, you know, actually talking to your boss about reducing your hours or negotiating a raise or taking a sabbatical that's a really tough conversation to have. Like, it's not like you just walk into the boss's office, say, hey, I'm going to take off for six months. And they're like, that sounds great. Could you give us some tactical tips that listeners can use to, you know, start to get some things swinging in their favor? Yeah. So, so one thing I think that everyone should do is build up their financial freedom because it helps to like equalize the power in the relationship between you and your employer, right? Like when they have, when you need the money and when you need the paycheck, they have the power, right? If you're living paycheck to paycheck or don't have a lot of savings or don't have an emergency fund or aren't to, you know, a place where you can make those shifts, like they still have a lot more power. Even though I do think at that point you probably could make requests and they might be granted, that level of confidence isn't there. So I think there's that piece. I think the second piece is no, like be a good employee. And if you do, they will want to keep you. It is so hard to hire good people, (laughs) um, right? Like I know most people see the hiring process from the candidate perspective where it's like really hard to find a job. But from a hiring perspective, like it's extremely hard to find and the like hiring processes just take a long time, right? And so if someone came to me and was like, I would like to take three months off when I was working in HR, if they came to me, I would like to take three months off. And if you don't let me, I'm going to quit. I'd be like, great. And, and, and <laughs> if they were a good employee, right, that I did not want to have to replace, I would say, great, let's figure out how to do this. Because hiring is like, it's really hard to hire and train someone into a new role. And it takes a lot of resources to do that. So I feel like people take maternity leaves for three months and we handle it 
easily. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So I, I, I do feel like sometimes your employers might not be super amenable to it. But if they're not, then maybe it's time to find a new employer. Yeah. I mean, I think we definitely discount our worth in those situations. Like we, th- we look at it as very, you know, the power being very unequal. Like we have to have them. If you, if you don't have your finances straight and even if you do, it can still just be intimidating and you, and you may not value yourself as much as they value you. You may not understand how much power you actually do have. I was going to kind of switch gears a little bit and kind of see if you could be my therapist. Okay. So we're sitting here and we're talking about like how to help people get their mind around this stuff, how to say it's okay to slow down. It's okay to slow down. Well, what about somebody like me who I don't have a problem addicted to needing more money to spend it, maybe already reached financial independence, but I just kind of want to keep running up the scoreboard. Like, how do you, like, how would you talk to somebody like that? It's like, you're not miserable. You're not really running yourself in the ground. But why are you running the scoreboard up? And like, here's why you should stop. Well, so the first thing that I would do is to ask you to talk to me about why that is important to you. So why are you continuing to focus on generating income to keep running up the scoreboard? I think, you know, and like a lot of people, you just want to be overly conservative. You just want to make sure that your plan can't fail. Are you enjoying what you're doing? I do. Is it like if you were to rank your work on a scale of one out of 10, 10 being like, this is the most fun thing that I do all the time. I am in flow. I am in a flow state 100% of the time. And I freaking love it. Okay. And a zero is like, this is the worst thing ever. Where? How would you rank your work on a scale of of zero to 10. It's an interesting question because I almost can't imagine any job that would be a 10 unless it was like, hey, you get to like just drive four wheelers through a forest or something. I don't know. But um, Mm -hmm. let's give it a, let's give it maybe like a a seven. So is 70% like, does that feel good to you? Like, does that feel like you are living the life that you are meant to be living? If you're like, it's like a seven. I mean, I think you've cornered me here. You've caught me. You've caught me in a trap. <laughs> well, okay. So there's that piece, right, of of realizing, like, I think, like, the sixes and the sevens are actually the places where we're most likely to get stuck because it's not so bad, right? Like, when when you're in a career place, like, where I was in 2018, that was, like, that was a one, Right. Like I mm-hmm. had to change it. There was not like it and there was nothing to lose by changing it. Right. So then. Right. But then when you get up to six and seven, then you're thinking like, oh, what if I get into a situation that's worse? Right. Like you have something to lose at that point, potentially. So I guess the next question that I would ask you is what do you have to lose by finding something different or doing doing something different or doing less yeah. I mean, honestly, probably nothing other than knowing that any job that would bring that 10 would mean that score is going up at a much, much lower pace. I just thought this was kind of like an interesting you know, thought process because I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there who maybe don't want to step away from their jobs just because they're, they are high incoming or even if they're not super high income, they are maybe multiples of what you know, they imagine would be their perfect job, their perfect day. They're like really happy day. But I thought that was a a good example. Like when you talked about Rebecca, where you can get to a point to where 
you don't have to replace all that income. It's okay if it's a fifth of what you're making because all you got to do is is kind of replace this little delta between what your investments are bringing in and what you need. And, and she is getting to do those things that are attend to her like walking dogs. So, Yeah. One, one other thing, I think there's something around, or I think there's two other things. I think one of them is around having a vision for what a 10 would look like. And then once you have the vision for what the 10 would look like, then you can say, is that trade-off worth it to me? But without having the vision of what that what a 10 would look like, then you can't like you can't make that assessment. Right? And so you just say like, "Oh, well, I can't imagine that, so I'm going to stay." Right? So I think there's one next step potentially for you if you want to take it. I think the other piece is really like understanding the finances and what they mean for your life today. Right. And so they, we have a new calculator on our website that we released recently that's focused on meaningful financial metrics, meaning like what are the things that will help your life today? And one of them that was really impactful for me that I think could potentially be for you is, to, is like, okay, so if you're financially independent, anything, right? Like you're way, you're well past Coast Fi, right? Like there's a, that like there's a metric that was super helpful for me that was like if i stopped investing now what would my portfolio be at the age of 65 if all i did was cover my actual expenses right and for me i calculated it and that number is like half a million dollars more than like what we would actually need to be financially independent Right. So I wonder if you could calculate that number to see like how much higher it would be than what you would actually need. And it could give you confidence to like scale back to even be like, I'm just going to like scale back a little bit. Right. Because you don't have to also immediately just be like, I'm going to quit and not generate any income. Right. I think that's a shock to the system for people who are sort of hard charging toward FI. But could you like, work 80% and then work 60% and then start your own business on the side if you want that could possibly cover your full expenses. I'll have you call my HR and pitch that 60% option. <laughs> we can see what we get going. <laughs> for those of you who are listening, Jessica is a lifestyle design coach. So for those like me who are moved by this, because I mean, I'm in a similar camp too. Like sometimes I'm just like working for no reason. Like literally yesterday, actually, my girlfriend wanted to go on a walk and I wanted to work at my computer just because I wanted to make more money. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? Like <laughs> going on a walk is so much better and hanging out with my girlfriend. And I'm literally wanting to work on my computer, even though I don't like need the extra money and need to spend the extra time on this. So I'm definitely feeling what you're putting down, Jess. <laughs> mm -hmm. I do want to pivot for a second because something I've heard you talk about, and I think this might be able to round out this conversation a little bit more, is making a five-year plan. I know you and Corey made like a really elaborate five-year plan with like goals at the end of each year and along the way. And I think that is a nice North star to have if you're someone in my situation or Justin's situation, or even someone who's just starting out on the path to five, just kind of knowing what those next couple of years might look like so you can hold yourself accountable. So we decided to create a five-year plan. I think part of the reason why is that I'm like, I'm ready to like make these transitions, right? And, and Corey is a little bit less ready for that. And so it was helpful for us to get on the same page as well because it seemed like 
we originally had plans that were like, great, we'll semi-retire or maybe the business will generate enough income in like five years that Corey would be able to quit. And it's sort of going at a pace where it's like, oh, no, we could actually generate as much income as we need this year, like in year two of the business that Corey would no longer need to, to work in his job. Right. And so that sort of necessitated this conversation because previously it had been when the business generates enough income, Corey can quit. Right. So then I'm like, oh, he'll want to quit. And he wasn't quite ready for that. Right. And so it was important for us to sit down and to talk about like our vision for the next five years, the values behind that vision and to really align and brainstorm ways that we would both be able to sort of meet those values and motivations. And so for me, my values are more around like adventure and exploration and traveling and, you know, freedom and time freedom and all of these things. Whereas Corey's values are are around like wanting to make sure that he leaves this organization that he's invested eight and a half years of his life into already in a really, really strong position to continue their their impact after he leaves. And so it, that was really helpful to know so that we were able to create a plan that incorporated both of those motivations into it, right? So we actually started out actually with a whiteboard of like, what was my ideal plan versus his ideal plan? And then actually started brainstorming, like what were ways that we could both achieve the, the sort of goals and values that we had. And so now we have a plan that's more that I would say we're as excited about. Like I'm as excited about this plan as I what would be about him like quitting next year. And so the plan would be for him to work for either two or three more years than to like pool up vacation time for next year to take like a month long like camper van trip because we want to test out to see if we want to build out our own camper van in the future. And then the following year, either if he quits, then we can, you know, travel and start doing all of those things that we want to do. Or the hope is that he would be able to take two months off. So either counting vacation time plus being able to take a sabbatical to take two months off and then he would go back to work for another year before quitting. So yeah, so it's it's interesting. And then for me during that time, it's focused on building, you know, continuing to build up the business. And then by the time he he's able to quit, I want to be able to generate enough like revenue and income that's gonna cover our full expenses, but only need to work eight to nine months a year. So that's my that's my big goal. So I can take summers off. Sounds like you got a lot of different options there, and they all <laughs> sound they all sound pretty solid though. And uh, they're coming up quick. I know they'll be here before you know it. I don't mean to give too much of like a conversation whiplash and go back to a different topic, but you said the word negotiate, and we don't get too many times to have somebody from the HR perspective, you know, the other end of the hiring process on the show. And, and I think back to, you know, recently for me, like when I started pushing for a salary increase, I thought like I was very happy with my pay until I found out what some of my coworkers were making. And I found out like the numbers I was bringing in and I'm like, whoa, 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 something's not right here. Like I should be making more and, and push for that. But 
you know, it was a little bit easier for me because now I had the knowledge in my hand, had the knowledge of how much money I was making the company, how much I was being paid, how much they were being paid. And so it was like easy to push for that. But do you have any tactical recommendations for people to just make sure they are getting paid fairly and to pushing for pay raises? Yeah. So I think there's a one, I, I think it is valuable to talk to your colleagues, right? I think when I worked in HR, I don't think I was allowed to say that. but I do think it is very valuable to talk to your colleagues because you will know that, right? And you'll know if your company is paying equitably, right? And so some companies have a really strong platform around that and want to make sure that people are paid in really fair ways. And then others don't do that. So talking to your colleagues, I think is really important. Also doing research, Right. Even if you don't talk to your colleagues, you can also do research on like Glassdoor, although some of the information is really can be outdated. Right. And so they, you know, there may have been a change in compensation philosophy or structure since then. So there's that piece. And then I do think it's like helpful to find out what the company's compensation philosophy is. So how are they deciding how much people get paid, right? Sometimes companies will have documentation around this. I think I might have actually written a post about this. I can go back and look for it. But there's basically two different types of compensation philosophies. So one is market-based, right? And so what they're going to do, the company is choosing to do is to pay people what the market will pay them, right? So they're looking at comparisons to what other companies pay that role. It's sort of easier to figure out in a, if they're doing a market-based compensation. Like you can say, oh, I have this many years of experience, go on pay scale, right? And you can figure out pretty easily, like this is what I should be paid. I think everyone should do that anyways, even if your company doesn't use that compensation approach, because it could help them also to change their compensation philosophy in the future. The second way is sort of looking at the contribution of different values across of different roles across the company, right? And so they might say, oh, everyone at an associate level gets paid in this range, or everyone at a manager level gets paid in this range, right? And that doesn't take into account as much the market, right? The the sort of different rate that like a tech associate level versus a HR associate level person would make, right? But oftentimes companies that have that kind of pay, if they're saying like, oh, this is the range that associates can make and this is the range that managers can make, they'll often publish those too. So, you, so you're able to like see, or you can ask for them, right? Because they exist <laughs> in <laughs> most places, right? If you're, if you're working in an established company that has like people and an HR system and like probably more than 100 employees, like I would expect that they have something like this of like documentation, even if it's just for managers you might be able to like get someone to tell you about it, right? So like pushing and like understanding, like asking lots and lots of questions to your manager about like how is pay actually determined and like how does my review go into it, right? And like building that, I think you can build a level of trust with your manager that like they want to be your advocate, 
but approaching it as like, I'm just going to approach this in like an inquiry based way. Like, I want to just understand how this is done. Like, that's the approach that I've taken throughout my whole career as well. Part of it was that I had the information, right, or needed to create the information. So I needed people to like, I needed to like build the buy-in from people of like, this is the compensation approach our company's going to take. So yeah, I do think that taking the inquiry-based approach to like really deeply understand is helpful because also at a certain point, they just, they can't bullshit you <laughs> or you'll know if they are. Yeah. Just hop on Slack and, uh, you know, ask your coworker. So uh, good morning. How much do you make, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> This conversation is bringing me back to my corporate banking days. And I'm just thinking about most of my coworkers. There are some people who are kind of on this financial independence path, but people are making a ton of money and they're what a lot of people would call YOLOing. But I recently read a post on your site how people are getting what YOLOing is completely wrong and how you shouldn't be, you know, buying fancy cars, spending all your money, going out to eat and living in a fancy apartment. Could you explain what YOLO actually means? Yeah. So, well, I think that people misinterpret YOLO and they think that me going and spending all of my money is like the thing that enables me to live my best life. Right. So it's like you have the extreme situations where you have someone who like makes the money, they quit their job, they go, they travel the world, they spend it all, they come back, live in their parents' basement until they get another job and then, you know, do it all over again. Right. Or you have the people who are, just right, spending way more than they on things that they don't actually need, thinking that it's going to make them happy, right? I don't actually think that I think we've seen a lot of evidence that people who sort of spend super lavishly on lots of things aren't necessarily actually happy, that it's like sometimes a symptom of unhappiness that causes them to do that. However, I think about it as like, what is the thing that's actually going to enable me to like live my best life both now and long term? It's saving money, right? Because saving money enables me to walk away from a toxic job and never have to go back, right? To that job ever again. And it enables me to drop my hours and work 60% so that I can have two days a week, right, to do whatever I want to do. Or it enables me to like start the business of like the thing that would be a 10 out of 10 for me so that then I can like transition that to a full-time thing and I can quit the part-time job before I'm able to cover my actual expenses when I have a frustrating interaction with my boss, I can just decide to quit if I want to, even though I'm only covering 50% of my expenses at that point. Like it enables me to do all of those things. Whereas if I was YOLOing in the traditional sense and spending all of my money, I would be stuck in jobs that I didn't like for a lot longer periods of time. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, I know I've seen some of your presentations around kind of designing your lifestyle and this idea of slow fi and it definitely opens up so many more possibilities. It's not just work until you hit a number and then retire. There's a lot of other paths you can take. So thanks for sharing those with us. For people who want to learn more about these ideas and philosophies you have, where's the best place for them to find that? 
Yeah, they can find me on my website, which is thefioneers.com. There's also information there about my coaching programs and the other work that I do. And then I can be found also on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at The Fioneers. And then there is a private Facebook group for people who are interested in slow fi and lifestyle design. And you can find that at thefioneers.com slash FB for Facebook. Awesome. Well, I was definitely moved by this episode. So thank you for coming on. I know I was just, you know, thinking about literally yesterday and just, you know, the last year, there's always so many decisions people can make. And sometimes you just need a little slap in the face to hit you in the right direction. So just want to thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.